The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for tuning into Spirit Matters 2.0. This is the reboot of the podcast that I co-hosted with Dennis Ramundi for about seven years. That iteration of it is ended, but the archive lives on, and uh, there's about 300 interviews with extraordinary spiritual teachers and experts, and we invite you to peruse the archive, listen and learn. You'll find it at spiritmatterstalk.com and the YouTube channel of the same name. And it's free, just like this new version, which uh, I'll be continuing on my own with conversations with a diverse range of wise people. And today's wise person is Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Rami's a self-proclaimed Quote, Jewish practitioner of perennial wisdom. He was ordained by Hebrew Union College and has a PhD in religion from the Union Graduate School. He's the co-director of the One River Foundation, writes the Roadside Assistance column, Roadside Assistance for the Spiritual Traveler, I should say, column at Spirituality and Health Magazine, hosts the podcast, Conversations on the Edge, and even I envy this one. He's written more than 30 books on religion and spirituality, including Holy Rascals, Advice for Spiritual Revolutionaries, a personal favorite of mine, The Tao of Solomon, Unlocking the Perennial Wisdom of Ecclesiastes, and his latest, Judaism Without Tribalism, A Guide to Being a Blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Rami, welcome. Bill, it's a pleasure to be here with you on uh, Spirit Matters 2.0. <laughs> I should say that among the uh, many uh, interviews in the previous iteration of Spirit Matters, you'll find two or three with Rami. Rami, yeah. on, on your website, uh, you say that uh, religions are like languages. Mm. Tell me what you mean by that. Tell us what you mean. Well, what I have in mind is that no rela- no language is true or false. Every language is an opportunity, is a, a means for articulating experience. 
and I think religion is the same way. It's religion is a language in that it gives us a vocabulary of symbol, of ritual, of liturgy, of actual words uh, to articulate our experience of reality. Uh, but none of it is true in some absolute sense. I, I approach religion the way Lao Tzu does, or Lao Tzu approaches the Tao in the opening line of the Tao De Jing, where he says, uh, the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. So as long as we're dealing with language, broadly defined, we're, we're always one step away from whatever that ultimate reality is. So, you know, when you're talking about regular language, English, French, Japanese, Chinese, whatever the language happens to be, the more languages you know, the more subtle your understanding of, of reality is. There, there, I don't know what the word is, but I learned this the other day. There's a word for that place in your back that you can't reach that itches. <laughs> you know, there's an actual name for that. If you knew the name for that, I mean, A, it's, it's a cool thing to know at parties, I guess. But it, it gives you a new insight into that itch. It's like, oh, that's the place called... So the more language you know, the more languages you know, the more, I don't know, the more subtle, the more rich your understanding of reality becomes. And I think the same is true of religion. I find religion endlessly fascinating because I think it's a human creation and people are endlessly fascinating to me. So religion is endlessly fascinating, but I don't take any of it at face value. You know, when a religion says, you know, this is the truth, I don't I don't believe that. I mean, the truth, no truth can be reduced to a specific language. No truth can be reduced to a specific religion. So I guess put that aside. But still, it's fascinating to see how religions approach that reality and what they make out of it. So the more I know, the more I know about reality, but I never mistake what I know about reality for reality itself. I don't know if that makes any sense, but makes sense to me. And I'm, I'm assuming it will to our listeners. If religions are a language or languages, then you, Rami Shapiro, are multilingual. Your, yeah. your own spiritual path, to the extent I'm familiar with it, has as you can see, for those, most people will be just hearing the audio, but behind you are symbols from all the world's traditions. Um, and in your personal spiritual path, you've drawn from them. In fact, you started out uh, before you turned back to your own Judaism and became a rabbi you were seeking in other places. So how has your exposure to these different languages, so to speak, um, affected your own spiritual path and your own uh, uh, approach to your inherited religion? Yeah, I mean, I started out in the world of Orthodox Judaism. That's what I was raised as, an Orthodox Jew. But I found myself outgrowing it in my teenage years. By the time <clears throat> I was 16, I was already interested in Zen Buddhism. It just seemed much more, I don't know, accurate, 
in its assessment of of what was true than than my Orthodox Judaism did. Uh, it seemed more practical. I mean, I could, I mean, you know, the the four noble truths. You know, life is. I mean, any translation of the four noble truths is problematic, but life life is fundamentally unsatisfactory. If you don't want to, if you want to avoid the word suffering, life is suffering. Life is not satisfactory if you live it from the egoic mind frame. You know, so life is suffering. Life is is unsatisfactory. the The suffering is caused by endless craving. That's number two. There's a way out of the craving. That's number three. And then the fourth noble truth is here's eight ways, you know, the eightfold path to get away from the craving. And that seems so much, that seems so practical to me. It made sense to me. So I began to pursue that path, uh, especially in its Zen uh, flavor. I, I found the Zen way to be, it just spoke to me for whatever reason. But I never gave up being Jewish. I mean, Jewish is more than a religion. It's it's a culture. It's my identity. So I, I was a... a you know, they didn't have the term Jew boo back then, but if they did, <laughs> I would have been a Jew boo, I guess, a Jewish Buddhist. But more, I was really a boo Jew, a Buddhist Jew, because I guess that was my primary identity. But what I got from that blending was a desire to to sort of, you know, what the Zen people call a direct pointing to mind, in you know, into the reality of the mind without language, without intermediaries. And so I was looking for that in Buddhism. And then I started to say, well, is it is it only in Buddhism? Can it not be in other religions? Can it not be in Judaism? So the Judaism I began to gravitate toward was similar to the Zen I was sitting in. I, I, I wanted a Judaism that also pointed me in that direction. And then I found it. I mean, it was there. It's just not the Judaism of a synagogue. It wasn't the Judaism that I was being taught. It was in the mystical end of things, but it was still there. So what my study of the of other religions did was I don't know sort of sort of encourage me to find what what attracted me in other religions then encouraged me to find similar things in in my my root tradition and and it did I mean so my my work in Hinduism um was primarily a desire for the the Advaita tradition, the non-dual tradition. And then I, I, once I was sensitized to non-duality within Hinduism, I saw it in Judaism. I don't even know if I could say I sought it out. I just saw, oh, wait, now I get it. That's non-duality. Here's, here's the rabbinic version of non-duality. So I became sensitized to these different things and then saw it in my own tradition and, and in other traditions. For those, Rami, before you continue with that, for those who are not clear on what non-duality means, how, how do you define it? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's the always... non-duality that can be named. Yeah, right. It's always so. So here's, here's my my definition of non-duality, and then someone's going to pick it apart. So my understanding of non-duality is that everything that exists is a manifesting of a single dynamic happening. You know, so I, I, there's, you know, the noun part of it, there are no nouns in the universe. Everything is a verb or a gerund. So there, there's this cosmic happening that manifests as everything that you and I encounter, including you and I. And it's, it's just one of them. 
you know, there's just one of it. Uh, so my favorite analogy is, is a Hindu analogy that there's uh, this infinite ocean and the ocean has infinite numbers of waves. And the waves are simply the happening of the ocean. So you and I and nature, the universe, are all the wavings of the ocean. And the ocean is not two. There's just one ocean. But there's a difference between non-duality and monism, where monism says, well, everything is the same. Good and evil, they, that's not, there's really no distinction. Um, you know, men and women, cis, trans, it's all, it's all the same. That's monism. But I don't think that's what non-duality is saying. Non-duality is saying, no, that there's there's something you can label as good and something you can label as evil and something you can label as trans and something you can label as cis and something you can label as black and something you can label as white. There are actual differences and the differences may matter, but they're all expressions, unique, diverse expressions of a single reality. And that's different than than being monistic yeah. the differences I, matter i'm glad you made that distinction because there's a lot of people who um become very um dualistic about their non-duality right. and and uh, sort of uh deny the reality of the the diverse world of form and substance and differences yeah well i i fell into that too um I was an orthodox, you know, a <laughs> orthodox non-dualist in the sense that I said, well, all dualism is bad. You know, I made it, uh, I made a dualistic distinction between non-dualism and dualism. And then I started having these experiences of, uh, you know, in Hinduism, and you know this better than I do, but in Hinduism, we have the notion of uh, Brahman without form and Brahman yeah. with form. So, uh, uh, was it Nirguna Brahman and Sadguna Brahman? So uh, my sense was, no, it's always without form. There's no form. Just get rid of all it. Then I started having experiences of the divine with form. It was the form of the divine mother. Mm. And sometimes it was Mary and sometimes it was Kali. And then in the Jewish tradition, it was I, I experienced her as Chachma, Lady Wisdom, or Shekhinah, the divine uh, feminine presence of the of the divine. So I was having all these experiences, but my experience was violating my my orthodox non-duality. I said, wait, no, it, you can't have this. And I had this wonderful conversation with Andrew Harvey once, and I said, look, I'm a non-dualist, and I'm having these experiences. And and he explained to me, and I won't go into my Andrew Harvey impersonation. I'll be, I'll be interviewing Andrew too, so we'll have uh, him yeah. explain. Yeah. So so, but he he was <laughs> he just very beautifully explained to me that it, that non-dual includes the dual, that it doesn't exclude anything, so that you can experience the divine mother as another manifesting of the the non-dual absolute, and that allowed me. Well, that allowed me to honor my experience, but it also allowed me to make room for, um, I guess you might call it in Hinduism, the Ishwara, your personal mm, personal, personal deity. deity. So some people, you know, as bhakti in their in their devotional lives, they they go toward the non-dual uh, through the the vehicle of of Krishna, or through the vehicle of Christ, or through the vehicle of of Kali, or through the vehicle of 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 some other uh, 
divine form. And but ultimately it's all going to end up in the non-dual. But but some of us need the form. I was convinced I was not one of them. <laughs> you know? And and not only was I convinced I was not one of them, I was convinced that those who needed it were a little less developed spiritually than I was. Yeah. And then, you know, then the universe said, Oh, don't be such an ass. And then I started having experiences of the form and I had to, you know, get over myself. So and so you're in non- good company, Rami. <laughs> all the all the great non-dualists. Yeah, have their their Ishwara kind of yeah, yeah. Uh, thing. So so what I love about non-duality is it makes room for everything. But and it it makes you it makes sure that you drive on the right side of the road because if there were differences, you might not do that. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> um to speaking of which, um, uh, you also call yourself a Jewish practitioner of perennial wisdom. And then you define what you mean by that. And in that uh, definition, you have four uh, attributes, so to speak, of perennial wisdom. And you use the term aliveness. All life is a manifestation manifesting of a dynamic non-dual aliveness called by many names. I'm curious why you chose that word and you elaborate as you wish. Yeah. I'm always looking for, you know, to put some language behind the ineffable and the word aliveness, it's English translation of a Hebrew word. And it's, uh, it was a term coined in the 1800s by uh, a Rabbi uh, Tversky in Chernobyl. Uh, in the of Ukraine. all places. Yeah, of all places. And and he used um, the word chayut uh, as a, uh, a euphemism for the unpronounceable name of God. And... I, I just liked it. I just thought that was great. It seemed dynamic. It seemed very Taoist, <laughs> you know, just aliveness. Uh, so, so I adopted it. Uh, you know, perennial wisdom, as I understand it, I mean, it, it goes back to the, I think it's originally called perennial philosophy. I mean, that's yeah. what Aldous Huxley calls it that. Um, but it, I think it goes back to the 1500s. Uh, but in, in his book, Perennial Philosophy, he defines it with um, a I can't remember the Swami's name from from the uh, Ramakrishna order, not not in the perennial wisdom book, but in the perennial philosophy book, but in his other book that he wrote with, uh, I think he, he helped in the translation of the Bhagavad Gita. He wrote the introduction to Christopher Isherwood's and Prabhavananda's. Yeah, all right, Prabhavananda. So in, in that, I think in that book, he gives a definition of perennial philosophy and in my own book, I just found his definition was too complicated for <laughs> for me anyway. So I tried to, as I was studying these things, I tried, what's the core? What's the, how do you get it, you know, down to its essence? And I came up with what seemed to me to make sense were these four points. And, and the first one is just what you said, that everything, and we've said that that's non-duality, everything is the manifesting or happening of this non-dual aliveness. Number two is you and I 
have the innate capacity to awaken in with and as this aliveness. The third one is when you do, you're called to be, in mm. Jewish terms, a blessing to all the families of the earth. That's from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And all the families, not just human, but you know the entire universe. And then number four, awakening to this aliveness or as this aliveness and being a blessing, that's the highest calling of, of every human being. So my sense is, and I get this from Brother Wayne Teasdale, Brother Wayne Teasdale and his work in interspirituality, I see perennial wisdom the way he saw interspirituality as the mystic heart of all religions. Right. And that's why when you get mystics together, they they have a common ground in their experience. Whereas when you get clergy together, they work on the surface of their religions and they're always arguing over the different the different claims that religions make. Um you know, they, they argue over the language, over the dialects, really, claiming or that. the dogma and or the, the dogma, yeah. The history right? interpretations. Yeah, but but they argue over silly things, you know. So, you know, they'll argue over the name of something. I mean, it's like arguing over um, you know, you, in English we call bread bread, and in Hebrew you call it lechem, and then you're gonna argue over well, which is the real word. No, it's stupid, right? That yeah. that makes no sense. Let's just taste the bread. Uh, mystics don't do that, right? Mystics experience the reality and then realize there's multiple ways of of speaking of it about it. But none of them actually get to the actual taste of the thing itself. So, uh, perennial wisdom, perennial philosophy is really at the heart of what the mystics are all about, and I think the mystics. If there's any hope for humanity, it's in the mystics, not in the the religious clergy and, and all of that. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. And we're all uh, inclined to be mystics, should we uh, take up the uh, the calling. Uh, just to elaborate a little bit on that, I want to see uh, if you uh, agree with it. Uh, Houston Smith, the great uh, scholar of religion, um, distinguished between the exoteric aspects of religion, meaning doctrine, ritual, interpretation, uh, things like that, the external, and the esoteric, which is the realm of the mystics that focuses on um, or emphasizes the experiential aspect of what uh, what we think of now as spirituality as distinct from religion. Is that distinction make sense to you as part of this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love Houston Smith. Um, but, I mean, he, I studied 
back then the book was called the religions of man that was mm -hmm. the book we read in high school i mean that was thankfully reissued as what religions of the world i think world yeah something or like the that. world's religion something like that yeah uh, no houston smith was brilliant and he also had some notion of sort of like the the, the spiritual equivalent of chomsky's um deep grammar like there was there's some deep spiritual grammar mm. that everyone has and and i think i think there's something like that as well in 1984 father thomas keating um convened the first of a 35 year experiment that that came to be called the snowmass group originally he brought together 12 contemplatives from 12 different traditions and we lived at the monastery his monastery in snowmass colorado for i think it was i don't know if it was a week or 10 days but whatever it was and we did that every year um and we followed the life of the monks so when they prayed we prayed but when they went to work we had a conference and we we meditated together we chatted together and one of the things that was so clear I, not just to me, I think it was clear to everyone, but certainly to me, one of the things that was so clear from the very beginning was we were all, even though we all spoke a different religious language coming from different traditions, we were all having the same experience. Now, I, I'm going to put experience in scare quotes because yeah, right. there was no experiencer there to have the experience. But when we talked about our meditation experience, uh, we all said, well, I wasn't there at the time, you know, that Rami was gone. I would sit and I would do the methodologies that I had been taught within the Jewish tradition. And at some point, Rami simply melted away. But when Rami came back, I sort of reconstructed what I think happened while I was gone. And this is what I think happened. And here's how Rami uh, seems to have been impacted by what happened in my absence. And everyone, though they articulated it differently, everyone was saying the same kind of thing. And that said to me that the experience is universal or that phenomenon that happens when the self dissolves is universal. And that's that deep spiritual grammar. That, I think, is very different, though, than what, I don't know if I want to say Americans, but but what many people refer to as spirituality mm -hmm. in, in the 21st century. When people say, oh, I'm spiritual, but not religious, they, they I don't know, I, oftentimes what that they mean is, oh, I'm, you know, I'm touchy-feely, <laughs> but, you know, but I, but I don't. To me, spirituality is practice. So it doesn't have to be meditation. It could be yoga. It could be um, chanting. It, it, I mean, there's lots of different practices, but spirituality is a discipline yeah. that gets you beyond the egoic self or that causes, that that primes the, the egoic self for the grace of dissolution, momentary dissolution. And it's not simply... Oh, it's a beautiful sunset, and I feel good. That's not spirituality in my mind. That's not a bad thing necessarily, but it's not what I call spirituality. Most people that I run into when I'm teaching or whatever, they, they don't want the kind of dissolution experience that mystics have because I, they, I think they fear it. 
Mm-hmm. But once once you've had it, uh, or once it's been given to you by the grace of aliveness, whatever you want to say, once you've you've gone through that, you there is no fear of that experience. And you realize it's this tremendous gift of liberation. And and there's not a lot of fear left in you when you come back because there's not a lot of you left <laughs> that that's that's there to be afraid. And where uh, in this, to come back to something you said earlier, um, there's also the what we think of as spiritual experiences with form that the the lover of uh, Mary or the lover of the uh, divine mother or the lover of Krishna or you know the lover of Christ experiences uh, do you find that there's commonality there even though the object of the worship or the uh, devotion will vary from tradition to tradition and person to person I, I think that there that there are different, qualitative levels with that. So you can have, I mean, I've had uh, um, encounters with the Divine Mother that are conversational. Hmm. Mostly she's talking, I'm listening. But but Rami is completely present. And I don't mean in some you know metaphysical way, oh, I'm, I'm fully present. I mean, my ego is there and I'm listening. Um, it's a valuable experience but it's not the mystical experience of what in Hebrew is called kalta nafshi, the, the obliteration of the separate self. Mm. So it's not that. I mean, she's talking, I'm listening, I'm learning something, I'm feeling something, but it's very egoic in that my sense of self is still very present. There are other experiences with her where... I become absorbed in her. Mm. So there's a, it's hard to articulate exactly so that she's present, but I'm not. And then eventually, I mean, how do I know that? I mean, if I even saying that I'm, I got to have to be present to some extent, but there's just sort of a sense of love present. And you know, I'm really my I, articulating. This is very, I'm not good at that, but but there's there's something happening, but but it's not really me there, mm-hmm. um, and so so you begin to see like there's a practice that I do where I, I it's a mantra kind of practice um, in English, well in, in Hebrew it's it's a variation of Psalm 16 where you say. Shiviti Shekhina Lenegdi Tamid. I place the Divine Mother before me always. And eventually you stop saying it, but you start experiencing it. And then you see the Mother everywhere as everything, humans, animals, trees, whatever. Uh, You see her as everything. And eventually there's just her. Mm. Not all the time, but there are moments when it's just her. Um, And even the eye that's seeing I don't mean the I, like the E-Y-E, but the 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 first person singular is also her. It's her seeing herself, sort of. 
<laughs> I mean, whatever you say, it's mysticism. It sounds nuts, but it's it's the mother seeing the mother, and somehow you're just in the mix. Um, and that that's an even deeper experience than when I'm having a dialogue with her. Mm-hmm. But all of it seems valuable to me. Mm-hmm. But both experiences are different than the the kaltinafshi, the obliteration of self that happens when I'm doing a different kind of meditation um, where I just, I'm gone, she's gone, there's there's nothing. Which gone, you know, gone, yeah. gone to the other shore. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like the heart sutra. So gate, gate, para gate, parasam gate, <laughs> bodhisvaha. So it's just gone, gone, beyond gone. Gone beyond even the concept of gone, and then you know, wisdom. Wow, how cool is that, right? So, so yeah, th- there's that's a whole different kind of thing, Good. but all of them are interconnected. I, I don't know, if, you know. I mean, we're making distinctions because we're using language, but I don't know if there's real distinction there or just uh, we're we're imposing distinctions. I'm not sure. Well, for people listening and for whom some of this is new, I think, you know, one of the takeaways, um, you probably agree, would be that all of this is individual and there's, you know, infinite number of uh, doorways into the divine and people have their different uh, ways of turning turning the uh, doorknobs or whatever. Yeah, because everyone's already... Uh, manifesting of the divine you're already it so it's just what's gonna yeah what's the doorknob for you um and and so there are the official doorknobs you know (laughs) that religions offer and then there's just um some fluke that happens and you just awaken right and it's just no it was not an official doorknob at all the door just was was open um, you know, there's this wonderful story that Franz Kafka has called, uh, in English, it's usually called The Law. And so it's a short story, but it's a long, longish story. I won't go the whole thing. But it's about this guy who's trying to get to the truth, and he finds his doorway to the truth. But he's afraid to enter because there's this guard there. Mm. And he spends his entire life trying to bribe the guard to let him in. And then on his deathbed, the guard comes over and he says, and I'm condensing the whole thing. He says to the guard, why, you know, why hasn't anyone else found the doorway? And the guard says, this is your doorway. It was here just <laughs> for you. You thought I was here to keep you out. I was here to keep the doorway open. All you oh. had to do was walk in and you were afraid. So, you know, all That's of us great. have the doorway. The door is open, but we've got this. Uh, uh, we're afraid to go. We're afraid to do it. That's you. great. I love that. Thank you. Um, your latest book, Judaism Without Tribalism. What uh, made you write it? What is the uh, core message in it? So they're really one and the same, I guess. I mean, what made mm. me write it is when I look at what's happening to religion, Judaism included, though not exclusively Judaism, is that religion seems to be devolving into um, ethno-fascist, tribalistic uh, mentality. And I mean, if you see what's going on in Israel at the moment with the new Netanyahu government that's coming in, it's it's 
to me, not to lots of people, certainly Israelis voted them in. Um, to me, it's very, very frightening that tribalism is taking over humanity and it's happening in in uh, India among Hindus and it's happening in uh, you know among among uh, Muslims in, in different countries is happening among certain Christians here in the United States. I mean, it's just happening all over the place. In every religion, there's just this ethno-fascist revival. And uh, I wanted to write a book that would that would push back against it and say, look, Jews are a tribe. I have no problem belonging to a tribe. I, I find that, um, you know, Sister Jose Habde, who is one of my teachers, long deceased, she was a Native American medicine woman and a, I think, Franciscan nun. Um, could have my denomination wrong. And she she said once that if you don't understand tribe, you don't understand the Jews. You know, mm -hmm. if you're not a tribal person, you can't understand the Jews. And and I got what she was saying. And and I think it's right that we're tribal. But there's a difference between being part of a tribe and being proud of your tribe uh, and being tribalistic which is where you say it's my tribe is the best tribe. My tribe is the only true tribe. My tribe is, you know, the chosen tribe. You know, God loves us best. You know, it's like the Smothers Brothers where, you know, Tommy would always say, you know, mom loved you best talking to his brother Dick. I mean, that was you know really ridiculous that you imagine a God that loves your tribe. And, and Jews aren't unique in this, right? I mean, the Japanese call themselves the land of the rising sun, because God loves the Japanese more than everybody else. They get the sun first. <laughs> the, the Chinese are the middle kingdom. They're the center of the world. I mean, everybody does this. So, uh, but it's dangerous and it's silly. And uh, it leads to, um, I mean, it leads, it leads to oppression. It leads to persecution. It leads to, to all kinds of violence. And we're talking about tribalism. You know, saying your tribe is is the the only true tribe or the only tribe that God cares about, all of that, and that's what I was pushing against when I wrote what what would a Juda Judaism look like that wasn't run by this kind of uh, mentality. So, um, you know, whether I did a good job or not a good job, the reader would have to decide. But that's what I was what I was pushing toward. I mean, I've taken it even further. Um, there's a 2,000 years ago, there was a rabbi, Hillel, who came up with, uh, a, he was approached by a Roman soldier who said to him, you know, I'm going to, I'd like to convert to Judaism, but on the condition you can teach me the entirety of Torah, by which he meant not just the five books of Moses, but the entirety of Jewish civilization, which was by then a thousand years old. He said, if you can teach me the whole thing while I stand on one foot, I'll convert. And Hillel says, what's hateful to you, don't do to anybody else. That's the entire Torah. Everything else is commentary. Now go study the commentary. So for the last 2,000 years, when that story is told, and it's told all the time, the emphasis is on go study the commentary. And we don't focus on the first part where he says, <laughs> look, Judaism is the golden rule. What's hateful to you, don't do to anybody else. I take Hillel literally you know, at his word. And if you start from the premise that Judaism is, now he puts it in the negative, Jesus puts it in the positive, but originally Confucius is the one who starts, who articulates it first, as far as we know. 
he puts it in the negative saying there's there's a whole literature about why putting it in the negative is more practical than the positive but regardless um by starting from the premise that the heart of judaism is uh what is hateful to you don't do to anyone else and everything else meaning uh, all of our teachings traditions uh holidays you know everything else is commentary what's commentary commentary helps elucidate the primary text the primary text is the golden rule so hillel is saying everything else if it's done if it's studied properly is a way of deepening your understanding of and broadening your application of the golden rule that's judaism now go do it so now when i'm invited to teach judaism in synagogues or wherever i'm invited to teach that's what i teach what i call one foot judaism and how to take kosher and shabbat and all, all the various aspects of judaism and say if you can't make this serve the golden rule either you're not looking at it deeply enough or maybe it's something we need to put aside because judaism is the golden rule so i mean that to me is this judaism without tribalism we talked earlier about um, what you, as a Jewish practitioner of perennial wisdom, have uh, how you have drawn from traditions other than your own to enrich your your own Judaism. What about the reverse? What do people who are listening, who are Christian, who are Buddhists, who are agnostics, or uh, whatever, what can they learn from non-tribal Judaism? So I was once invited to, uh, it was the it was the 150th anniversary of Swami Vivekananda's birthday. And the uh, Ramakrishna order was doing this India-wide celebration of the anniversary. And they kicked it off with this amazing event in New Delhi at the Ramakrishna Mat with the headliners. The headliner was His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama. And then right after him was me. Well, there were some other people, but I, I <laughs> Tough forget. Tough act to follow, Rami. Yeah, but I'm 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 being facetious. I mean, there okay. was a bunch of a bunch of spiritual teachers from around the planet. I was one of them. I just don't remember anyone but him and me. But anyway. Uh, so the the theme was something that uh, Swami Vivekananda said at the first parliament of the world religions in, what was it, 1893. Three. Thank you. And he said, um, he talked about what different religions can bring to the, the table of world spirituality. That's not how he put it, but that's how I'm are paraphrasing it and so the theme was what does your religion bring to other you know what can other religions learn from yours so what i talked about was what we call um arguing for the sake of truth arguing for the sake of heaven literally but for the sake of truth and how we take our texts and our teachings and we we don't accept them at face value that the Jewish approach to tradition is to say, well, maybe, but, and we argue with them and we look for ways to reinterpret them constantly because we don't think there's a definitive mm. um, 
way of being Jewish. I mean, of course, there are people who say, no, 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 it's my way or the highway. But theoretically, if you look back at rabbinic literature for the last 2000 years, it's very fluid in, in its arguments. And so uh, the the most, I think, one of the most important things that other traditions can learn from Judaism is to question your texts, to question your teachings, and to see what else, you know, to 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 challenge their authority and to say, wait, maybe that isn't what it means. What else could it mean? Because in Judaism, that's how that's how you honor the text by it's called turning Torah, by turning it over and over and over and over again to see what else it can say besides what it's always said. So I, I gave this talk, and at the end of it, I was swamped by all these swamis who wanted to know how they could do that, because yeah. they said, you know, when when our teachers teach, we just say, yeah, okay. And I'm saying, no, in the Jewish tradition, you say, well, that's your opinion. I appreciate it. I honor it. I respect it. But here's mine, and here's 20 other people's. And they don't have to agree. And in Judaism, the the, the more educated you are, uh, the definition of that, or the more literate you are, is based on your capacity to hold conflicting ideas in your head at the same time. And the more room you can make for, um, what would you call it? I mean, cognitive dissidence and, and just, and just uh, opposing ideas, that's considered intelligence. Mm. Not knowing the right answer, but having multiple answers can battle it out in your head. And today, this is where I'm going to go. But tomorrow, look, I'm some some other answer might might speak to me more powerfully tomorrow. And not having that considered, well, you just don't know. It's like, no, I'm constantly exploring. How does uh, oneness and non-duality fit into that uh, sort of infinite diversity of interpretation? Yeah, well, so that's the whole thing: non-duality giving <laughs> rise to infinite possibility, right? So yeah, yeah. you're not you're not stuck. It's all part of the infinite. It's all part of the play of the infinite. You, uh, your, <clears throat> your, uh, what you just said remind. There's an old joke that Jews tell about the uh, rival factions in the synagogue where the rabbi has died uh, arguing over some aspect of uh, ritual or liturgy or whatever. And they, <clears throat> they can't reconcile it. So they call in a very learned rabbi who listens to both to the first argument and says, that's the tradition. And he listens to the second one and says, no, that's the tradition. And they say, well, what? And then they start arguing and fighting among each other. I'm, I miss that. He says, that's not the tradition. Then he says, that's not the tradition. And then they argue and fight. And he says, that's the tradition. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's it. Arguing. There's uh, Amos Oz, who was a famous um, Israeli novelist. I think it's a Nobel Prize winner. He defines Judaism as a religion of argument and doubt. Mm. And that that always speaks to me. Now, as we're recording this in uh, late December of 2022, uh, it happens to be Hanukkah time. Um, there's a lot of jokes about Hanukkah being having been uh, invented essentially, so Jews had something to do at Christian at Christmas time when the dominant population was celebrating. <clears throat> How does Hanukkah 
fit into one foot Judaism. Yeah, Hanukkah is problematic. <laughs> if it weren't for Christmas, we probably would have forgotten it by now. You know, Hanukkah is a celebration of a military victory of a guerrilla band against an, an overwhelming, you know, military force. But it's it's more, you know, it it's taught as a small band of Jews defeating the the, the Syrian, the Greco-Syrians and the Hellenizers who tried to get them, you know, to give up their Judaism. It's more a story of a civil war, in a sense, between progressive Jewish factions who wanted to bring into Judaism the modern science and philosophy of the Greek world and the, you know, the, the conservative Jewish factions who said, no, we want nothing to do with those Greeks and their, 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 their thinking. Judaism has this rich um, literary tradition of Greek-influenced Jewish thought. So you get... Um, you know, coming from those Jews who lived in Alexandria and lived in, in in Greek culture. So we have all these books that are in, not in the official Jewish canon, but in the Apocrypha, where, where just brilliant things, the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, and anyway, there's all, the, all these books that you can get in English if you look at the Apocryphal books that are written by Jews, for Jews, but influenced by the Greek tradition. Anyway, I always think, whose side would I be on? <laughs> you know, given, given what I know about myself and my interest in science and philosophy and not interested in, in uh, you know, living by, you know, the ancient traditions and, and all of that, I, I'm a progressive. And I think, geez, I would probably be on the losing side of this war. <laughs> uh, and, the, and the people who won, the, the Maccabees win and they establish the Hasmonean dynasty. And then over time, the Hasmoneans become really nasty um, sort of ethno-fascists. I mean, they, they are not liberal in, in any way. And yeah, they're, they, it, you know, we, we celebrate it today as oh, religious freedom because that's a, an American trope. But they were not about religious freedom. They're about religious freedom for themselves, but not for anyone else. And they they become problematic, uh, and and become an opposition uh, stand in opposition to the rabbinic tradition that's that's emerging. That's why, uh, without getting into the weeds here, the original Hanukkah holiday was a military celebration, and then the rabbis invented the story of the oil that lasts for <laughs> eight days to shift it from the Maccabees' victory because the Maccabean dynasty becomes anti-rabbinic. And they introduce this miracle story, which the rabbis can get behind, because it has nothing to do with the Maccabees, right? I mean, it's not about their victory. They they dedicate the temple, and the, mir the miracle is the, the oil lasts for eight days. I, I think there is a miracle at Hanukkah time, the miracle, and it does speak to the, the psyche of the Jew. Uh, the miracle is that they bothered to light it at all, instead of waiting a few more days to make more oil. I mean, that's the miracle. Eh, you know, well, we could wait and, and we could get enough oil. Eh, just burn it. Let's see what happens. <laughs> I mean, that's that's sort of very Jewish to me. That's um, great. Um, well, on that note, on that uh, note, just which brings it. us back to, you know, current politics and um, the uh, upsurge of, of tribalism everywhere. Um, thanks for uh, taking on the issue of tribalism. 
Um, and you evoked Swami Vivekananda in 1893. And I always uh, note that uh, part of his famous uh, opening talk in, in Chicago was decrying religious fanaticism and hoping that uh, his the parliament that he was attending would be the death knell of fanaticism. It is. It obviously was not. And so uh, thank you for being one of the uh, voices opposing tribalism, fanaticism, and uh, speaking out on behalf of the perennial well, it's perennial human, wisdom. You and I together, brother. <laughs> that's that's your, your task. You're doing the same work. Yeah, I kind of feel it's... Um, as now that we're elders, yeah. <laughs> there's a certain responsibility of uh, yeah. bringing out these things. I thank you for being with us, Rami. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell, My... tell the listeners how they can find you online. or Yeah, you can reach me through RabbiRami.com and through uh, the One River Foundation, which is OneRiverFoundation.org. Give us the one sentence about one, one River and what it is. One River is devoted to teaching perennial wisdom. So that's that's what we do. Very good. Okay, thank you, sir. And you can also find him in every issue of Spirituality and Health magazine, offering his uh, timeless wisdom for uh, roadside assistance. Thank you, listeners. Thanks for being with us. Please tell your friends about Spirit Matters. Please subscribe. Uh, email me with suggestions uh, for people to interview or feedback about how I'm doing. Visit my website, philipgoldberg.com, and subscribe to my mailing list. I'm, I'm not uh, a nuisance. I just send out mailings every month or so with good stuff in it. Rami, thanks again. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind, Body, Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.